Coming up next, please join us for Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 110. In responding to Yeshua's statement that it is not good to take the son's bread and throw it to the little dogs, I think the woman's response was rather perceptive. Yeshua was alluding to the temple Sadducees, children or sons of the big dog, the dog star Sirius. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben-Mordechai. This is episode 110 and part 14, addressing some selected texts of the New Covenant as they relate to the general themes in the texts of the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's continue where I left off on the last program in Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 in this narrative. For context, let's begin with Matthew or Matthew 12, 1 through 4. At that time, Yeshua went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, or the lechem hapanim in Hebrew, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the Kohanim. Now, contextually, to say that it was not lawful for David to eat from the bread of the presence is based on the written law of the Torah at Exodus 31, verses 15 through 16. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to Jehovah, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep or guard the Sabbath to observe or do the Sabbath throughout their generations, a perpetual covenant. As we learned on the last program, the entire dialogue between Yeshua and the Pharisees is not teaching that Jehovah's laws are to be pushed aside when it comes to someone who is in need of his mercy and compassion. Well, of course, exhibiting Yah's mercy and compassion is essential to demonstrate Jehovah's nature, but still he also has a character that demands loyalty, righteousness, and justice. In reading about David and what he did, when he came to the Kohen, Ahimelech, David took advantage of the priest through manipulation and speaking with the intent of misleading him. All this put Ahimelech and the whole priestly community and their families into mortal danger because of the recklessness envy, and unpredictability of King Saul. 
In returning back to the story in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, the Pharisees among the Judeans accused Yeshua's disciples of lawless behavior when they saw them plucking heads of grain from the fields on the Sabbath. Thus they said to Yeshua in Matthew 12, 2, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. In response, Yeshua spoke to those men about David's actions. And that's in Matthew 12, 3. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? How he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of Elohim, or God, and ate the showbread, that is, the lechem hapanim, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the Kohanim. What was Yeshua's point? The answer to this question is what Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the blameless. From Yeshua's point of view, lawlessness is not defined by man-made determinations. Lawlessness is about disloyalty and breaking of covenant with Jehovah, and I will show you this in a moment. You see, it was not Yeshua's disciples who were lawless, that is, disloyal and breaking of covenant with Jehovah. In fact, just the reverse. The Pharisaic religious authorities and the Sadducean Kohanim in the Jerusalem temple were, in fact, the true lawless ones. The whole lot of them were effectively illegitimate. The Pharisees came out from a religious separatist movement established in the 2nd century before the Common Era, in the days of the post-Hashmonaim period of the Maccabees when Judaism was becoming more and more Hellenized or Greek. This separatist movement, referred to as the Pharisees, established themselves as authorized interpreters and teachers of the Mosaic Law. As for the Sadducean priests, they were usurpers through political appointments to the office of rulers and judges, not from the divinely approved line of the house of Tzadok through Aaron, the brother of Moses. It was this house of Tzadok priesthood who preserved so many of the Dead Sea Scrolls for us, including the Book of Jubilees. Yeshua insinuated that the Pharisees took on a spiritual role that was not authorized for them to do, that of interpreting and teaching the law, the Torah. And as for the Sadducean priesthood, they also had no authorization to function as judges and to eat from the table loaves of the temple bread, referred to as the lechem hapanim, or in the King James Version, the showbread. 
To appreciate the truth of this lesson from Yeshua, one must turn to the story of the Canaan woman from Tzur and Sidon in Matityahu or Matthew 15, 21-28. Then Yeshua went out from there and departed to the region of Tzur and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, to Yeshua, saying, Have mercy on me, Master, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. Yeah, she was making quite a commotion. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and bowed down towards him, saying, Master, help me. So here is where the lesson begins to take shape. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the son's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The woman was obviously well aware of Yeshua's allusion because of her response. She said to him, Yes, Master, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The master's table is a reference to the table of the twelve hot loaves of freshly baked lechem hapanim, that is, the bread of the faces, placed there weekly in the Jerusalem temple holy place and those Sadducean priests, to whom Yeshua would call disloyal, they ate of that bread every week when it was changed out every Sabbath. The little dogs is a reference to the idolatrous and disloyal priests of the temple in the days of the prophet Ezekiel. Take a look at this in chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. So he brought me into the inner court of Jehovah's house, and there at the door of the temple of Jehovah, between the porch and the altar, about twenty-five men with their backs toward the temple of Jehovah, and their faces toward the east, and they were bowing down to the sun towards the east. And he said to me, Have you seen, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing? to the house of Judah, to commit the abominations which they commit here, for they have filled the land with Hamas, or violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. In this narrative, twenty-five corrupt priests were bowing down to the sun toward the east, bringing to mind the words of Moses in Devarim, or Deuteronomy 4.19. Guard yourselves, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, and you feel driven to bow to them and serve them, which Jehovah, your Elohim, or your God, has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And if your translation adds the words, as a heritage, that statement does not appear in Hebrew. 
Now, this statement is, of course, directed as a warning against bowing down to the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is defined through the patterns of the star constellations in the heavens. I think this is what Yeshua had in mind when he said to the woman in Matthew chapter 15, it is not good to take the sun's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He was evidently making a pointed reference to those 25 covenant-breaking disloyal priests of Ezekiel's day. They were quite likely bowing down to that very bright early morning dog star called Sirius, prominent in the constellation Canis Major, the big dog, or the greater dog. Sirius is about twice as massive as our sun and has a visual magnitude of about 25 times as luminous as our sun. So for the ancient Egyptians, the helical rising of Sirius marked the flooding of the Nile River. And for the ancient Greeks, Sirius marked the dog days of summer, which perhaps you might have heard of that concept. In responding to Yeshua's statement that it is not good to take the sun's bread and throw it to the little dogs, I think the woman's response was rather perceptive. Again, she said, yes, sir, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. It is not difficult to see the connection made in the statements from Yeshua and the woman. Yeshua was alluding to the temple Sadducees as little dogs, that is, children or sons of the big dog, that is, the dog star Sirius. Just as Yeshua called the scribes and the Pharisees of the Jewish exile of Babylon little snakes or little serpents, this is understood from Matthew 23, 32-33. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of Gehinom, or hell? Yeshua observed all of them as disloyal to Jehovah and covenant breakers among the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, this is surely how Yeshua interpreted the treachery of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Take a look at John 8, 39-44. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Yeshua said to them, If you were Abraham's sons, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from Elohim, God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the actions of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Yeshua said to them, If Elohim, or God, were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth 
and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to hear my word. The Hebrew word there would be Shema. You are of a father, the Nahash, that is the Satan or the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, that is, from Breshit, Genesis, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, for he is a liar and the father of him. The prophet Isaiah also spoke equally as bold in his day, saying in Isaiah 5, 20 through 21, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. The idea of being wise is from the Hebrew term hachamim or chacham, which in Sephardic Judaism is the way that you call a rabbi. He is a chacham. So Yeshua says, Woe to them who are hachamim in their own eyes and understanding in their own sight. This clarifies what Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, when he spoke to the Pharisees, saying, Or have you not read in the law, that is the Torah, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath. That is, they make the Sabbath like a regular, normal day. And they are blameless. And Yeshua goes on to say, and yet they are blameless in that work on the Sabbath, meaning they're declared innocent of any wrongdoing. So he's asking them, have you not read about that in the Torah? He is referring to the written Torah and the oral traditions that have been passed down along with the written text. To understand Yeshua's declaration, one can study Mishnah 5.8 in the Jerusalem Talmud. It reads as follows, As work is done on weekdays, it is done on the Sabbath, only that the priests rinse the courtyard against the wish of the sages, because the Pharisees and scribes did not want the priests cleaning up all that blood that was accumulating there in the temple courtyard on the Sabbath. But the priests didn't pay any attention to that anyway. In the early third century Mishnah of Yehuda Hanasi, or Judah the Prince, which was the first major written collection of Jewish oral traditions, we learn this, as it is recorded in Menachot 96a. With regard to the twelve loaves of the high priest's griddle cake offering, of which six are offered in the morning and six in the evening, their kneading, that is the forming of their loaves and their baking, they take place inside the temple courtyard. And 
all types of labor involved in those actions override Shabbat. These labors cannot be performed prior to Shabbat or Sabbath, as once the loaves are consecrated in a service vessel, they are disqualified if they are left overnight, simply saying that when the loaves are baked on Shabbat, that they immediately have to be transferred into the holy place and put on the table in the tabernacle or in the temple. You can't bake it during the week because then it leaves them to stay overnight and that would disqualify them as the Lechem HaPanim, which is changed out weekly on the Sabbath. And these lessons are echoed in the 13th century Midrashim and Torah commentary of Rabbi Yehezkiyahu ben Manoach on Shemot or Exodus. This is known as Chizkuni Exodus 25.18.1. Even in the Torah, we find exceptions to overriding commands, such as, quote, anyone who performs forbidden work on the Sabbath being guilty of a legal execution. That's coming from Exodus 35.2. But it goes on to say, while the priests performed such work in the temple every Sabbath when offering the daily communal slaughters or sacrifices. And then the teaching continues on. Not only that, even individuals, when becoming fathers of a baby boy born on the Sabbath, they circumcised them on the following Sabbath. So this is an established interpretation from the Jewish oral law on Exodus 35, verse 2. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to Jehovah. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Consequently, we can see that Yeshua was making a pointed reference to their so-called authorized interpretation. Again, Matthew 12:5. Or have you not read or perceived in the law, that is, the oral law or the oral Torah, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? That is, they make the Sabbath like a regular, normal day. And yet, they are held blameless, meaning they are declared innocent of any wrongdoing. Now, whether they were correct or mistaken in their adjudication was not the point of Yeshua's exchanged dialogue of words and lessons as it's written for us in Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Instead, Yeshua's point was made very clear in Matthew 12, verse 7, as I explained to you earlier. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the blameless. Now, some translations may say, I desire loyalty and not sacrifice, I'm going to address this matter shortly. 
So if you prefer, I think Yeshua was saying the following to these people. You self-righteous religious separatists and Jerusalem temple priests who condemn the innocent are really the ones guilty of lawlessness, of disloyalty, and of legal justifications to break Yehovah's covenant law. It is your guilt that is on the line here, not a perceived guilt that you want to place on the shoulders of my students or my disciples. And we can see the same issues bubbling up to the surface in the council meeting of Yeshua's partisans, such as what was written about in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 10. We'll come back to this and so much more after I take a quick break, okay? I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. Welcome back to the second half of Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 110. Here is your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi ben Mordechai. Let's continue where I left off here just before the break. I was addressing the issue of Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the innocent. And previously, I told you that some translations, like the new King James Version, will say, I desire loyalty and not sacrifice, which I'm going to come to in a moment. What Yeshua was saying in Matthew 12, 7 is basically what I want to paraphrase for you now. You self-righteous religious separatists and Jerusalem's temple priests who condemn the innocent, you are really the ones guilty of lawlessness of disloyalty, and of legal justifications in order to break Yehovah's covenant law. It is your guilt that is on the line here, not a perceived guilt that you want to place on the shoulders of my students or my disciples. So we can see the same issues bubbling up to the surface in the council meeting of Yeshua's partisans, such as what was said in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 10. This is Kepha, or Peter, addressing the council and saying, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And the years and decades that followed Yeshua's death resurrection and ascension, the same issues kept coming up over and over again, such as this statement in the book of Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, the Pharisaic Sanhedrin, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day, and the high priest, that is the Kohen Hagadol, 
Hananiah or Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, referring to the Torah, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law, referring to the oral law? Because recall in Judaism, the written law and the oral law, or the written Torah and the oral Torah, are considered one Torah, one law. They're not two separate entities. They are both united together as one. So when you speak to Jewish people about the Torah, you have to make sure that both of you are speaking the same language because you may be referring to written law and they're referring to written law and oral law. And if you don't know the oral law or the oral Torah, then they're not going to hear nor understand what you're saying because the oral Torah goes with the written law. That's the point. So getting back to this narrative in the book of Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, Paul was struck on the mouth by one of the servants of the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And those who stood by, they said to Shaul or Paul, do you revile God's high priests, the Kohen Hagadol? Now notice Paul's response. He said, oh, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, the Kohen Hagadol. And then he quotes the text from the written Torah. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What exactly did Shaul or Paul mean by saying, I did not know, brethren, that he was the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest. Well, of course, Paul was well acquainted with Hananiah or Ananias and Caiaphas and all of the Bothusians and the house of Katros, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He knew them all very well. Of course he did. So what was really going on there? Paul was saying in straight, no-nonsense talk that he did not recognize any of their priesthood temple authority nor any of the teaching authority of the Pharisees. For Paul, they had no authority. Zero. They were illegitimate in the mind of Shaul because for him, the only real legitimate Kohanim or temple priests and those teachers and interpreters of the law of Moses were those in exile from the house of Tzadok in the Qumran communities of the Dead Sea region. They were the only ones authorized to function in those roles, according to Yehovah. And years earlier, Yeshua had a similar encounter at his Sanhedrin trial of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Take a look at John 18, 19-23. The Kohen Hagadol, that is the high priest, then asked Yeshua about his disciples and his doctrine. Yeshua answered him and said, 
I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where the Judeans always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why don't you ask them? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Yeshua with the palm of his hand. And he said to Yeshua, Do you answer the high priest like that? Yeshua answered him and said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Well, I'm reading between the lines, and I can see very clearly here that this is Yeshua alluding to the fact that these religious judges and religious leaders and teachers, they were covenant breakers, they were disloyal, and they had no authority whatsoever to do anything that they were doing there in the temple and in the synagogues. They had no authority. That's why Yeshua said to them, If I have spoken evil, okay, then bear witness of that. In other words, you have nothing on me, and there is no evil, so therefore I ask you, why do you strike me? What authority do you have to put your hand and your fist in my face? You have none. And this pattern of abusive judgments from illegitimate temple priests and religious leaders in the synagogues and all of the officials who worked with them and for them is also clearly seen in passages such as what is written about in the book of Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look at this. Now, as they spoke to the people, the Kohanim, that is, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, they came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. And remember, the Sadducean temple priesthood did not accept the resurrection from the dead because they were focused on a teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. What you have in this life is what you get. And so they were focused on obtaining and living a life in the lap of luxury. That was their focus. Whereas the Pharisees, they had a different view on the resurrection of the dead based on their understanding of things. And so, in the book of Acts chapter 4, continuing with verses 1 through 3, So they laid hands on them, referring to Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, their elders, scribes, as well as Hananiah or Annas, the high priest, plus Caiaphas, who was identified with the Second Temple period Katros, or the house of Katros, who had a very large home in the upper old city of Jerusalem, which if you have been to Jerusalem for a tour, you will have seen that home when you go down that whole series of stairs into what is called the Burnt House. That was part of 
the house of Katros, or part of the house of Caiaphas. So it was not only all of these people, but it was also John and Alexander, who were family members of Annas and Caiaphas. They were all gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the middle, or in the midst, referring to Peter and John, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? In other words, where is your authority? Who has granted you the authority to do any kind of teaching, especially about Yeshua? And then you go to verses 18 through 20 of the book of Acts chapter 4, and it reads as follows. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Yeshua. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Look, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to Elohim or more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, this is very interesting, folks, because when Peter and John said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, it appears very clear to me as a rebuke to them to cease their disloyalty to Jehovah by letting go of their illegitimate authority. Put a different way, they were saying to them, you judge yourselves as to whether you are being loyal to Jehovah's covenant or not. Then in verses 23 through 26, Peter and John went to their own community of believers in Yeshua and reported to them all that had happened. While retelling everyone there about what took place, they quoted David's Psalm 2. So let's take a look at Psalm 2, verse 1. Why did the Goyim rage and the people plot vanity or emptiness? So from Psalm 2, verse 1, Peter and John were fundamentally calling the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees by the term Goyim, or if you wish, religious Gentiles. Then in verse 2, they called all of the national leaders, those including the Sanhedrin of the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, they called them kings of the land and characterized them as self-appointed kings. And this is an accurate rendering of Psalm 2, verse 2 from the Hebrew text. The kings of the land establish themselves, because in the Hebrew, this is from the verb building block called hitpael, meaning you're turning the action back onto yourself. So they're saying the kings of the land establish themselves, and the heavy ones, or the great ones, were gathered as one against Jehovah and against his Messiah. This hint confirms accurately what I previously thought Peter and John 
might have actually been saying to them, Judge yourselves according to Jehovah's covenant, meaning judge whether you have the legitimacy to function in the role in which you have chosen for yourself. Judge it according to the Qumran Dead Sea region house of Sadok priesthood in exile, because you guys are not one of them. That's how I understand Peter and John to be saying. Now let us tie all of this together and connect it back to Yeshua's earlier dialogue about David's actions in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Again, let's start by going to Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. Yeshua said to the Pharisees, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, you would not have condemned those who are innocent and blameless. But they were condemning them. So that's why Yeshua said what he said, quoting Hosea 6.6. You see, Yeshua's quote from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is an important statement because the concept was originally unpacked for us in 1 Samuel 15.22, and it was repeated again from the prophet Micah, or Micha, chapter 6, verses 6-8. through eight. So let's take a look at all three of these texts. First, let's go to 1 Samuel 15.22. Has Jehovah delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Jehovah. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. So here the focus is on obey from the Hebrew word shema, shin mem ein, shema. It carries the sense of hearing with the intent to be obedient. Let's go to the second passage that I want to look at. Micha or Micah 6, 6 through 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does Jehovah require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Here, I want to show a focus on two words. The first word is that of justice coming from the Hebrew word mishpat, mem, shin, pe, tet, mishpat. It carries the sense of truthful adjudication or addressing a legal proceeding in and with truth, or essentially making truthful statements. The second word that I want to look at is loyalty. It's coming from the Hebrew word chesed. That's chet, samech, dalid. Chesed, it carries the sense of fidelity and faithfulness. And here you can see this in Hosea 6.6, For I desire chesed and not sacrifice and the knowledge of Elohim more than burnt offerings. So here the focus is on the Hebrew word chesed, which gives us the English word loyalty. 
Again, it carries the sense of fidelity and faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew word chesed, chet samek dalid, is most often understood and translated to mean mercy. The problem is that chesed does not at all carry this meaning in biblical Hebrew. There are other words for mercy. It is not chesed. Any respectable scholar of the Hebrew language and any good academic lexicon, it will tell you the true meaning of the word. But putting academic respectability aside, if we simply will allow the clear meaning of ancient paleographic or pictographic Hebrew to define chesed, I will tell you straight up, it's going to show us what this term is all about. That chesed means fidelity, faithfulness, and covenant loyalty. So according to the ancient original paleographic or pictographic Hebrew for chesed, we're going to get the following. The Hebrew letter chet, with its pictographic form that looks kind of like a fence or a boundary. That's exactly what it is. It is like a fence or a boundary to guard and to protect. The second letter in the Hebrew word chesed is that of samech. Now, samech in paleographic or pictographic Hebrew is the image of a big, leafy palm tree. And when you're in Israel, you'll know that when the wind is blowing and howling and it's really a strong wind accompanied by a rainstorm, those palm trees just seem to bend with the wind. They rarely will break. They just stay with it. They kind of go with the flow. So the idea of the pictographic summit, it is pregnant with a meaning that indicates a tree that is able to sustain anything. It is something that's sturdy, that has staying power. And then the third letter in this word chesed is the pictographic form of a door that is delet. It's an entrance opening that is hinged to a support beam or a support wall. So it's strong. It's sturdy. So when we join the three letters of this root together, chet, samech, dalid, chesed. The picture of chesed is one that is fenced in, sustained and supported like a door that is hinged to a solid wood or stone frame. The word chesed gives us the Hebrew model of loyalty and a sworn obligation to stay steadfastly true to a covenant through love. Beginning with Genesis 12, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with all Israel, this covenant is defined by Jehovah as unshakable, unmovable, steadfast, unwavering, and fully resolute. So Jehovah's commitment to us is called covenant chesed, covenant loyalty, an expression of his forever love. And we can see it very clearly in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire fidelity and faithfulness and covenant loyalty, not sacrifice. This is exactly what Yeshua quoted in that story 
as he is having this lengthy dialogue between his words and those of the Pharisees. However, I want you to keep in mind that this account from Hosea 6.6 is preceded by Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, just a couple of verses before, which translates the same Hebrew word chesed as faithfulness and not mercy. It's just showing you that loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness, that these are correct ideas for the term chesed. Let's take a look at Hosea 6.4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness, that is, chesed, your fidelity, your faithfulness, your covenant loyalty, is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. And we'll come back on the next podcast, and you'll get a pretty big picture of what's going on in Matthew chapter 12. But we'll come back to all of this next time, okay? Because I'm out of time. Thanks for joining me today in this word from Matthew chapter 12. You've been listening to episode 110 and part 14 of my multi-part series on some specially selected new covenant texts that, as I perceive, have some candid connections to the teachings of the House of Tzedok and the Qumran texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you have any questions or comments about any of these programs, navigate over to our website at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. Y'all willing? I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.